Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of December 2021. We are just a couple of weeks away from the winter solstice and the weather has definitely been wintry here in Sitka over the past few days. Had some lows down into the lower 20s and uh, nearly a foot of snow accumulated at sea level, I'm sure much more at higher elevations for those that are able to get up and enjoy that. It's certainly something I've appreciated seeing all the snow on the trees and the softening of the mountain peaks as the rough edges get covered in a blanket of snow. I've had a chance to get out and do some birding. There's been a glaucous skull and uh, I haven't seen it, but a couple of folks have reported a yellow-billed loon here in Sitka. Got to see 70 Pacific loons all out at Sawmill Cove the other day, which was the most I've ever seen at one time from the road system, so that was fun. If you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded and originally aired back in the fall of 2019. I spoke with Leslie Harris, a polychaete specialist based at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with me offering my basic understanding of what polychaete worms are and then have her expand upon that and go from there. For folks that don't know what polychaete worms are, I'll I'll give my really basic understanding. They're segmented worms in the phylum Annelida or something like that. And probably what people around here are most familiar with that are in that group are the pile worms that show up, the big giant ones swimming around sometimes. Yeah. Uh, And then the the feather dusters. I would imagine those are kind of the two that if... People only know or have heard of one polychaete or two. That's probably the two, at least around Sitka, that folks have heard of. But as you were just showing me some videos, there is a remarkable diversity of polychaetes around the world and probably here as well. Uh, so I thought it'd be fun to just chat a little bit about what polychaetes are and, and what folks can see around here. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get the fuller version of, of what polychaetes are, other than my very simple understanding at this point. Well, your simple understanding is... Completely right. They're, um, they're annelids, phylum annelida, and you can think of them as the marine cousins of earthworms. And in fact, there are marine worms that do look remarkably like earthworms, and people, people call them earthworms, but they're not. Um, but no matter where you go in the world, earthworms pretty much look alike. They could be one inch long, or they could be three feet long, like the giant earthworms of Australia. But um, they all look alike. The color is different, but the body shape is the same. Reproduction is the same. Uh, They eat the same. Behavior is the same. Whereas with polychaetes, there is this incredible diversity of shape and form and color and size. Behavior, reproduction... Reproduction, you name it, they've got it. Sexual, asexual. They've got hermaphrodites that are both male and female at the same time. They have sequential hermaphrodites, first male and then female. Most of them are male and female. Asexual, they can split up into dozens of little pieces, and each piece will regrow the head and tail. You can cut them in half, and both parts will revive. Some alternate sexual and asexual reproduction, which is just incredible. It's mind-blowing what they can do. They're everywhere from the highest reaches of sandy beaches or rocky shores down to the deep abyssal vents, and some spend their entire lives swimming like fish. And 
unlike earthworms that pretty much just eat leaf litter and organics in the soil, well, some polychaetes, marine worms, they're herbivores. They will only eat seaweeds, seagrasses. Others feed like earthworms. They'll digest off organics. Uh, some are scavengers. There are a lot that are carnivores. There are some that feed like spiders. They spin webs and they catch things that are floating on the water. And some, they're big enough and they catch fish. I have video of one worm catching a foot-long puffer fish and dragging it under the ground in less than a minute. So <laughs> these are the sorts of things that you're glad. I, I, I feel like, well... Being in the water, I'm glad they aren't just a little bit bigger and consider humans uh, small enough to, to, <laughs> to go after because that, uh, you know, watching – and it's not really a graceful thing either. I mean, uh, they're, they're, you were telling me that they're quite long. They can be, you know, many feet long and going down. So they have a lot of, of grab in the sediment. Mm-hmm. And it's not like – it's not like they're excavating a hole. They're literally just kind of pulling it down into the, into the dirt, which isn't the way that I think about being the easiest – like – when I bury things, I don't just push them into the dirt, which would be kind of the equivalent for, for this. Maybe they're living in softer sediment, so maybe that makes it a little easier. But, but that's, like, they're not that big around, it doesn't seem like. So they're, they've got a, a, a pretty mighty grip with their jaws. You were talking about um, the fish-eating worms that right, are yeah. un- unicids, the one that I just showed you the video of. And so let's say that one is 10 feet long, which means that it has thousands of pairs of little legs. It does build itself a burrow, and as it grabs the fish, it's probably injecting some kind of paralytic poison into it, enzymes, digestive enzymes. And um, so the fish isn't going to struggle very long. But meanwhile, that worm has thousands of pairs of legs digging into the sides of its burrow, and that gives it incredible traction. And with all that traction and the strength of the jaws and how how strong they're and how deep they are into the fish, uh, they just pull it under into that soft mixed sediment in just seconds, literally just seconds. Wow, yeah, <laughs> and I don't know. I, I think I think there's an example of that if, if folks want to look on on uh, on the internet. It seems like in the the uh, true facts about the the polychaetes is there the true there facts a, about the bobbit worm. Oh, the bobbit worm. Okay. Yeah, the, the the common name is the bobbit worm. Some people are trying to change that to the sand striker worm, which is a bit more accurate. Um, but that's what you'll find it under. Yeah. All and right. there are lots of videos of them taking fish, and they're great. <laughs> they it, are just it, it really seems great. Like, so, so these are are these an attraction for for places that have them for scuba like like are people specifically going to see these on scuba diving trips and that kind of thing? Oh yes, there are some parts of the world, um, mostly in the Indo Pacific, where the attraction are the small and squishy things that live down in the sediment. So people are going there to look for. For octopus, they're going there to look for these worms, the bobbit or sand striker worms. They're going there to look for particular types of of shrimp and other things that live there. And there are dive guides who specialize in them, who know that when the photographers come, they want to see creatures A, B, C, and D, and they know exactly where they are. And you need the guides because some of these uh, 
these top ten, these hit lists that the photographers are are after, are about the size of your fingernail or even smaller. And so when you're, I mean, so these folks are underwater, so they're they're going to be active. When we're actually out here on our beaches, we're probably walking over them many times. You know, just not being aware that they're there. That like when the water's out, they retract um, largely. And so uh, you were mentioning, like in some cases, there's still a bit like the the tubes of the tube worms, the feather dusters, those calcareous shells. Those are pretty obvious. Um, but other things, you know, they're in the in the sediment. So if we were to take a shovel on a sandy beach around here, chances are we'd find uh, various types of, I mean, I don't have any idea how many different kinds, but, but who knows what kinds of, of polychaetes that are just in the sediment? Oh, yes. Well, think about it. When you're walking out in the woods, what are you walking on? Yeah, you're on dirt and there's, I don't know, grass or lichens, but what's underneath? Think about all the worms that are down there, all of the insects that are down there. It's the same when you're in the ocean, whether you're on a mudflat or you're, you know, 500 feet deep, there are things living down there that you're never going to see unless you really take time to look for them. And so these are, yeah, I mean, some of these are going to be inaccessible to most of us just because they're so deep. Um, but it seems like there's some that are, um, uh, well, there's plenty that are, you were mentioning that one of the places you want to look while you're here is on the docks. Uh, so just looking around on, uh, I guess they're part of the fouling communities yes. on, on ropes yes. or lines and, and docks. And uh, I know the scale worms are one that there's a couple that like I can count the scales and say, oh, okay, I know which one that one is, I guess. But uh, but beyond that, it seems like that's a group, a family, I think, of, of these polychaetes that... I, I don't know, Are these? is this a group where there's just a lot of undescribed things or are they just really difficult to, to identify without actually dissecting or, or um, I just know that I don't have very many names for them when I've tried to figure out what they are. It's a combination of the two. The first is that a lot of worms, and not just worms, but small crustaceans and um, a lot of other things that live in the realm of what I call the small and squishy, they're hard to identify because the characters that you need to separate one species from another, or even one genus from another, they're practically microscopic. Or they are microscopic. You have to take off some of the body structures and put them on a slide and look at them using a microscope to see the difference between one and the other. You mentioned the scale worms. There are some genera that they're pretty easy to tell apart because of the number of pairs of scales on their back. If there are 18 pairs of scales, then it's Halicidna. And the most common one is Halicidna brevicitosa. So 99 times out of 10, when somebody puts a picture of an 18 scale um, worm, it's going to be Halicidna brevicitosa. That's a very easy call. If it has 15 pairs of scales, then it's probably for this area um, and on a dock, uh, Harmathoe, probably Harmathoe imbricata. But there are a number of different species, so you can go with probabilities of that it's this one, but um, you can't be sure. And that's why when I'm on iNaturalist doing identifications, I won't go that far unless I can absolutely identify it because I don't want to put wrong information out there on the internet because then it just keeps getting spread. Right. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's an interesting. 
thing, you know, the challenge, I suppose, of if if we had the ability to, I mean, I, I guess it's just kind of a, a, a idle wondering is if we had the ability to sit and watch them, you know, obviously that's difficult because they're underwater creatures. I suppose theoretically we could we could look at things in an aquarium or mm-hmm. more slightly more controlled environment, um, and and how often there would be. You know the 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 well. Uh, my 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 strategy is I'm I'm not much of an identifier. Like I don't like working through keys and trying to figure everything out. The technical language is is uh, you know because I'm interested in so many different groups of organisms. It's like learning the technical language for all of them feels a little bit daunting. Oh, that's yeah, that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> so especially because most of the time it might be one species that's here, and it's the one that's here all the time, and mm-hmm. that's the only thing you're going to see. Probability, and so, right? And yeah, and knowing the range, and and so I I figure if I can learn what something is in the first place, then I learn to recognize it, and then that's what I'm doing is I'm. But and and so in some cases there are similar things that you know maybe at first I was lumping together, and then somebody's like, oh, but there's actually two things here and once I learned to to know that and start paying attention then it was like oh now I get this kind of but I couldn't tell you very clearly like in a succinct way like these are the characters I'm looking to distinguish them they just look different to me is kind of how it works and I'm I'm wondering if if that's would would likely be the case with some of these like if we could really watch them and how they interact with their environment more they would clearly look different but because we're looking at them more often when they're dead and and that kind of thing that that you have to kind of rely on these these things which you can write down in a in a concise description so other people can utilize um but i mean i guess yeah i don't know if you have thoughts on that it's kind of more of a a wondering for me as a non-specialist like how much is that likely to be a possibility as opposed to no actually you know there's not going to be any way to tell them apart. I guess the real thing is like in the end, or, or the, the final thing is the DNA. Like sometimes maybe it has to go all the way to there. But DNA can be misleading. So, <laughs> so that's not even. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, eventually we'll get there with DNA, but um, not yet. And we can still use a lot of help from the living animals and from the dead animals looking at the different characters. I love looking at live animals because there is so much information you can get from them. Their behavior, the way they hold their appendages, um, the color, how they move, uh, what habitat they're in. These are all clues that can help you put things together. Um, You said that you were not much of, uh, well, a taxonomist, not much of an identifier. We actually are all taxonomists. We're born taxonomists, and, and maybe I'll talk about that a bit later. But um, I am a taxonomist. I love knowing what things are. I love putting names on things and figuring it out. To me, it's like, well, doing a jigsaw puzzle or doing a murder mystery. You're taking all the various clues, you know, whatever they might be, and you're putting them together and as you do that, you're getting the picture. You're getting your answer. And it's just fun. And along the way, you just learn so much about biogeography. You learn about communities. You learn about why they're there, why they're together with one another. And then you can start making predictions about other areas. Um, if you give me a set of animals, and it should be from California, where I have, you know, the most experience. But once I'm done figuring out that batch of animals, I can tell you whether it's from a mudflat 
whether it's from the mainland or the island, whether it's well mudflat or rocky, if it's um, high current flow, low current flow, and whether it's fairly clean or polluted. You know, these are just all the things that you can learn once you start putting all the clues together. And it's just so much fun to be able to do that. And it's useful because if you think about it, we're using everything that's out there and everything that's out there one way or another affects us. And especially here in in Sitka or any coastal town where fisheries is such a big part. If you just look at one part of the picture, just the fish, if you're not looking at what they're feeding on, if you're not looking at what they're environment is like, if you're not looking at what changes are going on in the environment, you can't really predict what's going to happen down the road. And if you can't predict that, if you don't have a good idea about these things, then you can't manage the fisheries, both to the benefit of the people who are here, the industries, and for the animals themselves, so that they're going to stick around for us to keep using them. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of the things that I appreciate is you know I am very focused on this area and um, maybe obsessively so, but anything that's here you know is, is of interest to me. And so there are a number of times when I like I know this is something different. I have no idea what it is, and it's that part of the identification. Like I'd love to have a name for it, but it's you know I appreciate having folks like you on iNaturalist that can say, oh, well, it's it's one of these things. You know, if you get a collection, I can I can tell you more. But uh, you know, there's only so much you can do from a photo. And just kind of like yeah. putting those pieces together and, and that, that uh, sort of that, that process of, of working with people who, who specialize in a group, but across broad geographic areas and mm-hmm. people who specialize in an area across broad groups, you know, and that seems like a nice, uh, iNaturalist is one way, it's not the only way that people kind of mix in that, in that fashion, but um, it is, uh, it, it's one of the things that, like, I've really enjoyed. I just want to know, like, my, my, um, my, Absolutely unrealistic goal is to, you know, get a picture of everything that isn't microscopic in this area, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> but, you know, it's something that'll keep me going for a while. So, uh, and, and I mean, I'm probably not going to become a scuba diver and that obviously puts hmm. some things off limits and stuff. So there are some other constraints on me, but, um, but that's kind of where I'm going. So it's like, but then I run into like marine invertebrates being not the only group, but I mean, and obviously that's a lot of different taxonomic groups, but just kind of a lifestyle there's so much stuff there. It's just so diverse in this area. And um, I don't know if it's like, I don't get the impression that it's, it's certainly more diverse than some areas of the world. But I I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of areas that have this, this level of diversity in in different groups, but you just go down there and it's like, it's kind of overwhelming. How do you start, you know, and so you just, uh, one thing at a time, I guess, you know, noticing what's there and, and um, and saying, oh, that looks different. And, and for me, that's done. Take a picture of it and see what somebody says. You are a taxonomist. We are all taxonomists. <laughs> We're born taxonomists. Babies are taxonomists because the first thing a baby does, not consciously, but it begins to divide things into good, bad, or let's say pleasurable and unpleasurable or painful. This tastes good. This is warm. This feels good. This is cold, you know. And it's the same process of identification, whether it's sensation or things, because that's what a baby does. It progresses from sensations, and then it starts identifying things. These are good things. These are bad things. And then start putting names on things. 
children are the ultimate taxonomists. They're the ultimate collectors. You know, give me an eight-year-old out in the inner title, and that eight-year-old will find things that adults will never find. Um, and a lot of us lose it as we grow older because we become complacent or we just accept the things around us. And we don't look at them as carefully as we did when we were children. If we did, we'd still continue to see this huge variety of everything that's around us. There's so much to know. But we are all taxonomous. Yeah, it's... uh, it's, uh I mean, I like the way that you put that. Yeah, I, I love putting names on things. I just, I don't have the skill and background to do the work to identify, like work through the literature, essentially. Mm-hmm. But once I learn that it's here um, and and know what it is, I like to then, like for me, that's just kind of the tag. And then I'm like, okay, I've seen this. And, and each year, like with plants that come up year to year or, or the tides, you know. It's like, oh, I see you again, uh, and or I see you in this different place that I haven't seen you before, or or these this kind of for me that's that's part of the pleasure is the the recognition, the the familiarity, yeah, the recognition. It's the recognition. It's the name that you put on it, and that name is key to everything else that you learn about it and how you put together all those different keys to come to your understanding of of the community, of the system, and not only of the system, but of your place in it and your relationship to it as well. Um, Taxonomy is the most basic science there is. If you think about it, whether it's biology, whether zoology, botany, geography, geology, if you don't know what you're dealing with, then how do you find out about it? Yeah, you can do observation, but if you know the name, then you can really go out and research it. And research it is as simple as going down to the science center and asking about it, or going on the web, or reading about it, or doing your own observations on it. But it's the key piece of information. And if you don't have the right name when you go out to get that information... You may not get the right information. Um, It's really simple, but a lot of scientists, in fact, don't have this understanding that if you misidentify something, and let's say you're trying to do um, management of fisheries resources, and you're using the wrong name, and you, you go into your textbooks and the net, and you say, oh, okay, this species lives in this kind of environment, and it eats in this particular way, and it reproduces at this time of the year in this particular way. And then you apply it to the management of your area. But actually, you have a different species. And the information you just got came from an animal living in the Red Sea. That's not going to apply here. Right. You know, so taxonomy is really the most basic and most important part to proper management, to proper understanding, to being able to put the pieces together correctly. And it's actually rather sad that in many ways taxonomy is a dying business, and not just business, but science, because people don't respect it. They think, oh, we've got DNA. We can just go and get the DNA sequence, and we know what it is. But we don't. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting 
just the the kind of the human relationship with na- naming generally, I guess. Um, you know, I don't. For me, um, I sort of my my personal goal is is to. I'd be able to learn to recognize things that are recognizable. And if that means that there's two different things that essentially I am going to be fundamentally unable to recognize in the field as distinct, then fine. I know those two things. It's one of those two. And that's good enough for me at this mm-hmm. point, you know. Um, <clears throat> and and just n- as far as I can kind of take that. But there's a there's an interesting loop that happens. It's, it's one, I go out and I see things and go, that looks different. Or that looks kind of like this thing, but it seems to be doing things a little differently. So maybe it's different. Um, and the other side is, though, that I see, I look in books or other things that people are like, oh, I've, that's something that should be here. Mm-hmm. I should go look for that. And, and it creates a different sort of uh, search image for me to kind of to, to rely on. And so kind of those two things working together is really how I've, I've learned most of what I've learned from around here is just being like, oh, I want to go find this thing. Like that's the treasure hunt side mm-hmm. of it. And then there's the, just the explore and see what, you know, the focus treasure hunt and the explore and just see what shows up in the moment, just kind of being curious about everything. And, and the names are, they're most helpful for communicating. I find that, that yes. I, and I think other people put names on things of a sort, often just descriptive, you know, that thing that, mm-hmm. you know, that does this thing. Uh, but I, it's, it's uh, yeah, as you were saying, it's difficult if I don't have a name that's widely recognized or understood, uh, then, then I have difficulty uh, getting information about it or learning what other people have learned. And so, so somehow I have to, to go from that descriptive, the, the picture, the what I saw in description, and then communicate that to somebody who knows enough to say, oh, okay, this is probably what you were seeing. Or, you know, it's probably one of these couple things. You might look at that, but we really need to see, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, sometimes, sometimes there's a, a, a part of it. And so with polychaetes, you know, you were mentioning small and squishy, like a lot of it's microscopic, but are there kind of any generalities that, that you can make about if people run into one of these and they take a picture, they want to know what it is? Like, are there some things that, that would be more helpful than not in terms of maximizing the chances of being able to get a name on it? Well, the first thing is to get a good picture. In focus, you want the animal filling up most of the frame. You don't want this little spot of color <laughs> on a pile of rocks. You know, that is just not helpful. So, the animal large in focus and a series of photos showing it from different angles and that will help um i've been at this game for a long time and there are certainly animals i can recognize because i've done so much field work and i've seen so many live animals but there's so often when i have to say i've seen it i know it but i can't prove it And unless I can prove it by having a specimen, I'm not going to put a name on it. Because as I said before, I don't want to spread bad information and get the wrong names out there. Um, In a way, that relates to a project that we're doing at the museum. We have um, a group that's called the Diversity Initiative of the Southern California Ocean, DISCO. And um, catchy name, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, nice, nice acronym. <laughs> that worked out well. We yeah. actually have a, a disco ball up in the lab and strobe lights that we turn on occasionally. But um, it's not restricted to Southern California, although that was our initial focus because the museum is Southern California. But what we're doing is trying to get specimens of as many marine 
invertebrate species as we can, not just from Southern California, but up and down the entire coast. We try to get them live. We photograph them live so we know what they look like. And then we preserve them and take a bit of tissue and do DNA sequencing. Because what we want to be able to do is something called eDNA, where you can take a sample of water and there'll be traces of the DNA of all the animals that have passed through there. Because sheds um, cells, which is what bloodhounds use to track people, shed cells will stay alive and viable in the water for 10 minutes, an hour or so. So you take that sample, you take out all those fragments of DNA, and you run it, and you know what animals were in the water or in the sediment. It's being used a lot by fisheries um, looking at um, fish in streams and rivers, for example, because you may not be able to find the fish, but if the DNA is in the water, then you know the fish is in the stream. Well, to do that properly, you have to have good, accurate sequences registered so that you can go and match the sequences that are coming up in your samples against this registry. And there are several which are on the web, like Bold, the, the, um, the Barcode of Life, and GenBank. Well, when we started the project, we looked at Bold and GenBank, and we realized that out of a potential 16,000 or more marine species, marine invertebrate species along the coast, perhaps a thousand of them had sequences. And when you went and looked at the sequences and the associated photos, as I did, it was easy to see that a lot of them were not accurately identified. So until you build this library and you have the accurate sequence in there, you're not going to get accurate feedback from when you do this eDNA, this environmental DNA. So somebody had misidentified things based on the morphology, essentially put it in, submitted it as the species, which was an incorrect uh, identification, and then that becomes tagged right. with the DNA right. for, for future yeah. reference. The taxonomists come with all levels of experience. Mm -hmm. So if you give me a worm with my years of experience, I may put a very different name on it than someone who just opened a field book guide for the very first time and uh, said, oh, that picture looks like this, and puts a different name on it. Um, and But it might be their identification or their animal that got sequenced and put into one of these online databases. And then I come along and look at the photo and say, no, 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 no. Um, so our goal at DISCO is to get as many different organisms as we can, sequence them, get them identified by people who are at the top of their game in terms of taxonomy, whether it's crabs or snails or sea stars or worms or, or whatever, and uh, get that into the databases so that we can progress and have a good outcome when we do the, the environmental DNA. So that um, that project is focused on Southern California, but how far have you ex extended it in terms of what you're sampling and, and, and working with? 
Well, I'm here in Sitka, oh, aren't I? Well, so you're going to use some of the looking to collect some things from here to include in that project. Then. Absolutely, because something else that um, I found out um, over the years of looking at animals along the coast is that even when we're using the same scientific literature, people in different areas can develop different concepts of what's meant by those keys. So that when I see a worm and call it call it species A, and then talk with one of my colleagues from Washington or British Columbia or up here, um, I may find out that they're using a very different name. Or else we're using the same name for different animals. Okay, now that's a problem, because we're making all of these decisions all of these management decisions, all of these ecological decisions, writing all these theses and publications, and they may be based on incorrect data. So by coming up here, collecting here, I've collected in BC, in the Queen Charlottes, I've collected in Washington, in Oregon, and California, and, you know, lots of places all along the coast. Um, by getting them and putting their sequences into the databases, we can compare them. We can see, do we really have the continuity of north and south that the books say we should, or is it really something different? And in the case of the small and squishy, it's often something different. We just haven't had the tools before to really look at these animals in the detail that we can now. Hmm. And do you, uh, just out of curiosity, like what would you expect the, um, I mean, I imagine this is, is just a, 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 a pretty much a guess, but like what would you expect the, the diversity of polychaetes to be in, in this region and then, and then kind of more collectively along, along the West Coast, you know, the, the, this, this kind of coastal upwelling area, I guess, is California, this uh, kelp forest kind of region. Um, that I guess the the macrocystis kelp goes from northern California, maybe it goes a little further south than that, all the way up to just a little bit north of here, kind of that eco-region. Macrocystis is from western Mexico, the Baja area. Oh, okay, so it does get down that part south. Up north, yeah, Yeah, up north. Um, And there are actually physical barriers, so to speak, um, between the different areas, like Southern California is in a different geographic province than you have up here. Uh, Point Conception, which is sort of the northern end of Southern California, um, that's a physical barrier in some ways because of the ocean currents. And then you have all the different temperature regimes going up and down the coast. So you can actually have quite a different fauna, but because we used the same literature up and down the coast, which may be inappropriate for both ends of north to south, we're coming up with the same names for what may be different animals. And if we're using the same names, then the information, as I said before, that we can find about these animals may be based in an area that's not appropriate. Information about animals from Southern California may not be appropriate to Sitka. They may be different. And I keep using the words different over and over and over. 
But um, I think that's what we're going to find as we move, you know, further into the era of DNA. And not just DNA, but as we learn more about what's important, what makes things different. We mm. didn't know that before. And when they started taxonomy in the 1600s, 1700s, well, a lot of species were decided to be worldwide in their occurrence because they weren't looking in the same detail that we do today. And who knows what detail they'll be looking at in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting, like some things are highly variable in color and other things like color is a great way to, to mm-hmm. identify two different things. And so kind of learning learning what particular characters that might be clear to us correspond to differences in the underlying, you know, uh, species. Uh, but I, so, so are you, would you think that there would be kind of on the order of hundreds or thousands of, of species of polychaetes? Or, I mean, I just I have no idea even of order of magnitude of, of like what would, what might be expected. Well, um, in my area, there's probably a thousand, a thousand described species, maybe 1,200 described species that, that are there. Um, I think the number is actually much higher because there are still, despite Cal- Southern California being one of the best studied marine areas um, in the world because of all the monitoring studies that have been taken place over the last 80 years or so, there are still undescribed species. It's super common to find undescribed species. It's not like, you know, finding a new species of bird, which is, wow, that's really exciting. That's rare. That, you know, that's great. Or a new species of, uh, of deer or mouse or whatever. Um, it's so common to find undescribed marine species. So we've got what's down here. And I think up here, there are so many things under the same names all along the same coast. I, I really believe that once we start looking at them critically, um, the list of new species is just going to explode. So I'm not going to predict how many yeah. <laughs> new species there are up here, but I think there's going to be a lot. Yeah, so probably our overall diversity will be at, certainly in the hundreds um, and, and maybe significantly larger. Significantly. Yeah. All right. So, I, yeah, yeah I'm just curious, you know, because I do have that goal of, of, you know, I guess when I start to run out of things that I can find on the land, I can start to dig up worms. And <laughs> then the trick will be uh, getting, getting a name on them, I suppose. But um, you did mention, you know, there's these marine barriers. And I guess I guess that in some ways uh, it's easy to, I mean, obviously temperature and things, and but but also physical barriers of current make a difference. And I, and I, and I guess that that has a lot to do with life history, like things that are always in the soil, in the sediment, soil, sediment, in, in, and don't really swim much, then obviously how they can move around is much different than something you mentioned. Some species are swimming like fish all the time. And so, like, what, what are the sorts of life histories that these, that these animals have? I mean, you, there's a lot of diversity in the, in the groups, um, and I, you know, I, I guess the, the, the two berms that have their calcareous tubes, they probably don't move very far once they're there. I, they don't, they can't pick up and move their, I don't know, maybe they swim out of there. I don't know. I don't know. Um, what are the sorts of things that, that these, these, uh, these creatures are, are doing to kind of make their way through life? Most of them have a pelagic phase or a planktonic phase or, or is, you know, are there commonalities? And yeah, I'm just curious about that. Well, a lot of them do. Um, most polychaetes are dioecious, which means that there are males and females. And for 
um, the vast majority of them, they have external fertilization. So the males and the females, they produce the eggs and the sperm, they spew it out into the water, they meet, the sperm fertilizes the eggs, they develop into embryos, and they're carried around on water. And whether that's being transported down a longshore current for miles and miles or swept out to sea, or whether they're in the microboundary layers, which keeps them within a few millimeters of the bottom, well, that depends on, you know, the environmental conditions. But it's external, and they have a pelagic stage, which could be from a few days to two weeks or months in the plankton. But there are also many polychaetes that have direct development. So as soon as a the eggs are fertilized, they start to develop into miniatures of the adults, and they stay down on the bottom. Some polychaetes brood their eggs. They have egg sacs made of mucus, and they lay their eggs into them or lay the eggs directly inside their tubes. And those usually have direct development. Well, I shouldn't say usually because a lot of them do have planktonic as well. But um, if it's direct development, then they just crawl out of the tube and just build their own tube or their own burrow next to that of their parents. So they have a variety, a really big variety of different ways of reproduction and disbursement. Mm. And how are they, so I guess those ones that are like landing on floating docks or whatever, they must, they must be settling out from a planktonic phase, presumably, to get there in the first place. If your floating object is completely bare, yes. Yeah, yeah right. Starting, yes. So I guess once they're there, then they can, they can kind of move around from, from being on there. But, and you mentioned that a number of them can just like split apart Mm -hmm. Uh, and i don't know how common that is for i mean is that so like with earthworms i've always said i've always been told i don't know how true this is well you just cut them in half and you know you'll have two earthworms and they'll be fine um i don't think that there is necessarily their preferred way of of reproducing um but they they're or they they can do that i guess uh so in the cases of the polychaetes like is are, how, are most of them capable of like being broken apart and, and regenerating, or is that kind of a specialty thing that only a few of them do? Or um, and and is that yeah? I guess that would be a way that they could essentially multiply in in an area if if they are relatively easily fragmented. For some species, uh, most polychaetes can regenerate if mm-hmm. they're cut in half, and if that the break between the anterior and the posterior is within a certain distance of the head. They can regenerate the rest of the body. Um, But that's not the full reproduction. You know, that's just survival of the individual and Mm -hmm. the fact that it can do that. So it isn't making two. It's just one that's recovering from a pretty grievous injury. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes the rear end can also regenerate the head while the head is regenerating the tail. Um, that's certainly possible. But there are ones that routinely reproduce by splitting themselves into two or more fragments. Hmm. And that is how you can get these really big colonies growing. Um, So that some tube worms, for example, they will split in two while in the tube, and then each part regrows, and the smaller part will once it develops the head, will crawl out and just start a new tube on the side of the adult. Um, Some of the tube worms, 
they have what we call escape hatches, which are weak spots in the tube. And when the brooded individuals or the regenerating individuals get big enough, they just crawl out through the escape hatches on the sides of the tubes. Um, and, well, it's, they're just really fascinating the way they can do this. And then one group, the serratulids, the hair worms, they're the ones that can split up into 10, 20, 100 different segments. Some of the segments may be only a few rings, and they will completely regrow from that. Mm. That's an impressive ability. <laughs> oh, they are so cute. They look like, oh, donuts with little heads and tails sticking huh. out of this big, fat middle donut. Oh, wow. So the, um, I guess, you know, I guess it's a reproductive phase. Of, I, I just hear them called pile worms here. Um, and I can't remember. I think I've heard people give a name to them, but the two to three feet long. I've never actually seen one, but people talk about seeing them swimming in the harbors. And then my understanding is that they, like, will just kind of, I think is that the epitoke phase or something that is the the word that I'm remembering. Like they just kind of break apart and that's part of their reproductive process. Ah. But um, I know that, you know, on uh, Karen Johnson here in town has, has started this unusual marine life uh, Facebook she page. She's great, post. isn't yeah. she? And, and that's one of the things that gets posted there from time mm-hmm. to time is we saw this crazy thing swimming around in the harbor. What is it? And it's just like this big, long... A worm-like thing, but it's it's some, and maybe there's multiple species that do it, or maybe there's just one. I'm not sure, but I was, was kind of curious about that. There's one really big one in the genus Alita, and yeah, it goes into a stage called epitoki, and there are basically two different types of epitokes. Well, more than two, but um, the two that you would normally see when you were out there would be. Like the Alita itself, what happens is that as it gets larger and starts to mature, it will produce either eggs or sperm. And parts of the the body, as it fills up with eggs and sperm, they transform so that the parapodia in the rear half of the body or two-thirds of the body start transforming. The parapodia become broader, the little bristles... Um, that are on there, they drop out and new bristles develop, which have oar-shaped blades. And this enables them to swim up when there is a full moon or a bright light, which they're attracted to in harbors. And then they come up to spawn for that external fertilization I talked about earlier, where the males shed their, their sperm, the female shed the eggs for the external fertilization. And then they can swim back down to the, to the bottom and go on living. Um, some of them, the transfer, transformation is so complete that basically they're nothing more than a bag of skin filled with gametes. Mm. And once they swim up and shed the gametes, um, that's it. They're dead. They're, they're an empty bag of skin. Um, then there's another type where the posterior end of the worm, again, it fills up eggs or sperm and then it'll grow a pair of eyes the parapodia transform it breaks off from the body and while the body stays down in the mud or the tube that posterior end swims up (laughs) that's kind of funny yeah Uh, just so it just like 
sends its sends its little bit up to space, so to speak, and, that's right. uh, and does its business while the while the rest of it stays and stays at home. If you've ever heard of the Palolo worm of the South Pacific, this is a polychaete that has the latter type, where the posterior end of the body fills up with eggs and sperm, develop the eyes, breaks off, and swims up. Well, this happens at such regular times of the year that the people in the islands that um, where it occurs, uh, Fiji, Samoa, some parts of the Philippines, Indonesia, they know exactly when it's going to happen. And it's a big, joyous event. It's a festival where hundreds of people will go out on their islands with their baskets and their pails and everything. And they will collect the organisms because it's always on a full moon. And they come up by the tens of thousands. Um, it looks like there's an oil slick. There's so many, you know, worms and the eggs and the sperm just covering the surface of the water. Um, so they go out and collect them, and they're food. Hmm. They eat them. It's um, They'll eat them raw. They freeze them for later. They bake them into bread, put them on top of pizzas, turn them into soups, um, omelets. And, uh, yeah, in parts of the Philippines, there's this beautiful legend about this beautiful princess. All these princes wanted to marry her, and they were going to go to war to see who could marry the beautiful princess. So she decided she had to stop the war to prevent any harm from coming to her people. So she called the princes together, and they met on a clifftop. And she said, I can't marry any of you. You know, I'm not going to let you harm the people through your silly wars. And she jumped into the ocean. And the gods, to reward her, um, they turned her hair into the worms. Mm. And so the worms come up once a year as a reminder to her people and as a blessing to her people. Mm. So it's a big festival. And they have ritual music. They have ritual um, sword duels. And, um, yeah, big festival. Wow. I'd never really thought about polychaetes. I mean, people around here talk about all the different things you can eat, but I don't recall anybody ever talking about eating uh, polychaete worms. And I don't know if the ones around here would be uh, something people would want to eat or not. But um. Well, they are eaten in a number of places around the world, and they're even farmed commercially. And mm-hmm. you could go into the local fish market, buy yourself a couple of pounds of, of worms, and take them home for a nice worm stew or omelet <laughs> or... Yeah, you could. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a little different than my sensibility, so I have to I have to uh, let that settle in for a while before I think I'd want to want to be bold enough to try. Uh, have you Have you tried uh, polychaete worm uh, food? It would be like eating my children. I see. I I could not do it. I see. Fair enough. Well, so the um, I guess I guess as we're kind of getting closer to the end here, I I was curious like as people go out i know you have this project going on but as people are just going out and and exploring as they do you know what are things that you'd suggest folks uh, looking for and and just to uh, in- encourage them to get a kind of a, a better appreciation for the polychaetes that are around here and the diversity that's around here you know what are the kind of uh, i mean probably there's a lot of less uh, obvious things that, that it would take a while to work up to to kind of appreciate those things. But what are some of the sort of like for, for beginner level polychaete appreciation that you might suggest uh, folks looking for? Well, docks. 
docks are great for the diversity of animals that are on there, not just polychaetes, but everything. I mean, I, I am obsessed about polychaetes, but I love marine inverts in general. So go to a dock, grab a couple of handfuls of the mussels or the sea squirts and put them in a tub, separate them out, um, bring along another little container and put the worm in there and uh, have a nice magnifying glass and just take a look, a look at, um, at the details or how they move. Um, they're wonderful. Flatworms, they move like smoke flowing down a hole. The way, they, the way they creep and glide and float, it's just mesmerizing. You know, little crabs, amphipods, they're adorable. But it does help to have a good magnifying glass. Uh, go out and dig up a shovel full of sand off a mudflat. Pull up a piece of seagrass. Look what's growing in the roots. Um, but separate it out, you know. Swish it around in the water so that you get the sand off and you can see it clearly. And just watch it. They're really fascinating animals. Does it, um, does it help to, I know with some things, like if you sort of swish it around and spread it out and then just let it settle, then our, our eyes catch motion a lot better. Mm-hmm. Like some of these things are probably difficult to see if you're yeah. not used to <laughs> looking for them specifically. But movement then you see, is that a mm-hmm. good way to, to start to... To find the things, movement and color. Yeah, yeah, I did find one that I like. I had no idea. I mean, I've seen these these worms before and and so forth. But I found one on a beach. I don't know a few years ago. That was I was a little surprised because it was iridescent. I was like, oh, how, I bet maybe isn't that uncommon? But I had never noticed that before. So it was kind of a really cool sheen. Uh, kind of a you know iridescence is all sorts of multicolored things. So yeah, uh, but it was it was yeah. uh, a surprise to me. And um, but there's no end of the things that I haven't seen before. So, so I, in that sense, it wasn't a surprise that I saw something new, but I was like, oh, how novel. I didn't, I didn't know. I don't know why they would be iridescent or not, but uh, I, looking at some of the videos, it seems yeah. like that's actually maybe fairly common. Um, the colors that polychaetes can have are just amazing. Um, there are a couple of families, psyllids, phyllodocids, uh, hesionids, where, my God, I mean, they're bright blue with red highlights or, you know, green spots going across there. They're iridescent purple. Um, They're just gorgeous. And all these different combinations, they're as beautiful as sea slugs and, you know, all the wild, crazy colors that they can have. Wow, yeah. Yeah, sea slugs are another one of those kind of... uh uh, crazy diverse, but they don't seem to be buried as much. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah. Um, and the thing with sea slugs is that their color patterns are usually very diagnostic. Mm-hmm. You see that color pattern, you know it's that species of nudibranch. That's not always the case with polychaetes. Not with polychaetes. Um, yeah, and I guess the one other question that I had is, I feel like I remember, uh, now I can't remember for sure, but I but I feel like I picked up one and it felt like it bit me. Is that like a, uh, it was kind of, it would have been a, one that I found in the in the sand and gravel. Is that something that's nor- like normally happens, or is it like care required handling these things sometimes, or, or is Not that kind really. of unusual? Um, you just held your fingers apart, so that looked like yeah, it uh, was probably two or three inches, four inches. Well, you're, long. you were yeah. holding it more oh, like six well, it inches felt like, long. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was probably really only three or four inches. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some polychaetes actually have jaws, mm-hmm. and they can bite. Most of them are completely harmless. Um, it will feel like a pinch or a sting. There are a few that you do not want to be bit by, and that's because 
either they've got some sort of mild toxin to them, or when they bite, well, think about it, they're covered with slime and detritus, and who knows what kind of bacteria, you know, is getting into your flesh when they Mm -hmm. bite you. Um, But in most cases, it's not going to be more than a momentary sting. Mm. None of them are truly dangerous for, for people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, it was probably more of a pinch. It just surprised me, and so it's like I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't expecting this soft body thing to mm-hmm. have that bit of a pinch. So yeah, I, I would think just, I dropped it. <laughs> I would just say, stay away from the bloodworms, mm-hmm. the the glycerus. Those those do have a, a very wicked bite. All right. Well, that's good to know. And um, is there, uh, you know, you mentioned you're doing this disco project and and looking to collect stuff here. Is there any way that folks, uh, you know, can, if if they're interested, I don't know if folks out there might be interested, but if they were, is there a way to, like, get involved or stay up to date or uh, contribute to that? Well, we do have a web page through the museum website, which is nhm.org. And then go to the Marine Biodiversity Center. We have web pages for that. And uh, a web page on our recent two-week BioBlitz, which was down in Los Angeles Harbor. We had 27 taxonomists. We collected 43,000 lots of, of organisms. Um, it was fantastic. And that's all being run through DISCO and the Smithsonian for DNA analysis to go into this library that I was talking about, uh, this DNA library. Um, So we've got information up there. They can contact me through iNaturalist. I am, what am I on there? I think you're Leslie H. I'm Leslie H., thank you. Different things on different websites, Leslie H. Um, If people want to collect and send it um, down to us or to me, um, that's great as long as it's legally collected. Um, we're a museum. We abide by you know all the relevant regulations, and we will not accept anything that is not um, legally collected, which means having a f- um, fishing permit or a scientific c- collecting permit. All right. Well, that's good to know. And is there anything anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up here? <laughs> Just that... Um, I think it's great that you're doing this program. I think it's great that people up here are so fascinated with what's around them. You know, like Karen, I met her through iNaturalist. And um, we've been corresponding now for two years. She's been sending me stuff legally collected. And um, there are so many people that are responding through her Facebook group the unusual um, marine life of Alaska, and um, keep it up. <laughs> it's great. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded and originally aired back in the fall of 2019. I was speaking with Leslie Harris, a polychaete specialist based at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. I want to thank her again for joining me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.